Welcome to Gleanings, where we explore holistic approaches to reaching your true potential, mind, body, and soul. Confidence is a muscle. Just like other muscles, when you don't use it for a while, it gets weaker. But it can also be built up slowly or more quickly with a plan and consistency. Will you have massive biceps, a six-pack abs, or toned thighs after one workout? Of course not. You may, however, experience some soreness and a slew of various thoughts ranging from, won't it be awesome when I get the results I want, to, ugh, I'm so sore from just one easy workout, why do I think I'll ever be able to reach my goal? When you start to use your confidence muscle, you can expect the same two things. You'll be mentally sore, and you'll have a big range of thoughts. Some of these thoughts will encourage and some will sabotage your progress, but only if you allow them to. You do not have to have the same results as the last time you tried to build your confidence. We are going to go over several tips, tricks, and techniques to build your confidence. I'll include a link to a free cheat sheet as well for your reference. You can even print a copy for your wallet when you're out and about and feel your confidence muscle weakening. On a side note, our confidence muscle is easily impacted by two much more developed muscles, our inner critic and our overthinker. We've likely built these up to be very strong and we build their strength up by listening to and therefore using those muscles over and over throughout the years. Our inner critic and our overthinker will attempt to sabotage our confidence. They will offer thoughts like, you're just going to fail, not sure why you're even trying this again. Remember that time when you're too old, uneducated, damaged, etc. to make this change? What if you put yourself out there and quote unquote, they laugh at what you do or you do it quote unquote wrong? Some people's inner critics may offer very cruel thoughts. Some overthinking spirals may even be very elaborate. I have two other podcasts that would be helpful titled Overthinking Spiral and Self-Sabotage. This one also has a coordinating workbook. Our brain offers these thoughts to keep us safe because where we are now, not trying something different than we've been doing, is keeping us safe. Likely, is also keeping us lonely, discouraged, or spinning, but definitely safe. We've looked at what our brain is doing, how it's trying to trick us to leave what we want for our own safety. Let's look at what we can do to build our confidence muscle. First, list it. Confidence builds with accomplishments. Make a list of five to 10 actions you'd like to feel confident enough to do. This does a few things. A, you get to check things off as you do them, so your brain can see evidence of possibility. B, you get to add more challenging actions as you check off others, seeing that things you used to think you'd never be able to do, you're doing now. C, you may look at your list and realize the things you want to accomplish are much more within your ability than the terrifying monstrosities that your mind has built them into. You may even be able to remind yourself of when you've done these exact same hard things in the past. Maybe they didn't bring the results you wanted previously, but that's where thought work comes in. And D, you can decide what thoughts you're going to take 
on to do those actions and therefore create the results you want. If you'd like to learn two powerful tools to bring about change in your life, sign up to work with me and I'll teach you all about the decide method and the model. Second, break it down. If you list something that seems huge and overwhelming, break it down into more doable chunks. Even if the chunks seem lame and silly, you're building your confidence muscle every time you do one of those chunks. Third, future you. What thoughts would your future self have while doing the action that you could use today? Borrow these thoughts from your future self. Four, fail forward. Embrace failure as a step in the direction you want to go instead of thinking it's a step backwards. Not doing anything towards what you want is going backwards. Fear is just an emotion. The most successful people still experience fear. They just take action in spite of it. Five, stand up for yourself. If someone says something negative about your efforts, you don't have to take on their negative thoughts as your own. Even if you aren't ready to respond verbally to the person, you can say your response in your own mind. Quote, unquote, I disagree with you. Or I think you're wrong. As your confidence grows, you can actually tell them this out loud. Six, keep your word. Do what you tell yourself you will do, even if it's uncomfortable. Building self-respect will spill over into being self-confident. Seven, have fun. Do things you enjoy that you're already good at. Instead of taking a first date to a restaurant where you'll sit awkwardly looking for something to talk about, organize an activity. Kayak, bike, ice skate, roller skate, geocache, paddleboard, join a game night, snowshoe, etc. Let the activity be a natural icebreaker. I went more in depth on those, and here are a few other quick ways to build confidence. Eight, hold your head up. Nine, practice making eye contact. Keep it brief, though. You don't want to be a weirdo. And ten, write and practice a confidence affirmation. It could be something simple like, I do hard things. Don't forget your free PDF of these confidence-boosting tips. Also, if you'd like support with building your confidence, sign up for a free consult so we can make an individualized plan to meet your goals. Remember, processed thoughts create desired results. And fifth, acceptance. It is going to be okay. The loss is real. It can't be exchanged for a different scenario. The mind has entered a more logical phase. David Kessler brings to our awareness the possibility of a sixth phase, which is that of trying to find the meaning behind experiencing the loss in his book, Finding Meaning. So where does anxiety fit into the picture? Anxiety creeps in through each of these phases, but most prevalently with denial and bargaining. The Kubler-Ross model of the grief cycle was initially developed for individuals who had a terminal illness. Therefore, some people will dispute if it is valid for individuals who have experienced a loss. I think that if a tool can be useful to show our thoughts and feelings more clearly, that it should be utilized, unless, of course, there is a harmful impact. There are five parts or phases to the grief cycle. These phases come and go. They do not happen in a particular sequence and may resurface even after you have moved 
moved past them. The five phases include during denial, it may look like if I don't accept this, then I don't have to deal with the feelings and I won't have to face any guilt or unresolved aspects of the situation prior to the loss. Now, of course, these thoughts are not always conscious or subconscious. denial, it may look like if I don't accept this, then I don't have to deal with the feelings and I won't have to face any guilt or unresolved aspects of the situation prior to the loss. Now, of course, these thoughts are not always conscious. Our subconscious, when we aren't processing our thoughts consistently, is often working overtime to generate anxiety for this or that reason in an attempt to protect us even from ourselves. During bargaining may be the phase that anxiety surfaces the most intensely as our brain searches through all the what-if scenarios. Our brain will come up with all the what-if scenarios that we give it the time to think of. With every what-if scenario, there's a dynamic of guilt with what we could have possibly done differently to change the outcome of the scenario. There are many things we can do to break the anxiety-grief cycle after a loss but we are going to focus on only five of them. First is journaling. Spill it all out on paper. When we avoid our thoughts or feelings, they become more deeply rooted. They fester like an infested, infected tooth until we have absolutely no option but to deal with them. Second, perform a ritual. This summer while kayaking, I came upon a makeshift memorial on one of the lake banks for a local girl who had recently passed away. She had been missing and thought to have been kidnapped, but was discovered to have actually drowned. As it had been all over the news, there was a sense of loss for all that had been praying for her safe return. As I sat there in my kayak, emotionally letting go of the outcome I had hoped for, I thought of other scenarios that I was still wrapped up in grief over because I was still longing for a different outcome. I decided to visualize letting go of those impossible outcomes along with letting go of this young girl who had left the earth so young. I felt a very heavy weight being lifted off my heart. The third thing we can do is create a container for the feelings. This ties into the first idea of the journaling but can be done throughout any time of the day regardless of the activity. We are often taught to bottle up how we feel so we don't burden anyone else with what we are going through. This can be simply a mental container that has a time span or an actual physical container. Perhaps you are needing to be more functional throughout the day, but the thoughts are eating away at you constantly. You can tell your brain, I hear you, and at 7 p.m. I will listen to your thoughts about this loss. This allows you to, in essence, let it go until a later time period. You can also create a physical box for your grief. You can decorate a box as your grief box. You can write your grief-related thoughts on slips of paper and put them in the box. You can then tie in the ritual option by burning the papers in a safe space to do so, like a fireplace or a campfire. I call this my surrender box. Number four may be the hardest it's to have patience with yourself. You have experienced a loss and it is okay to have a wide range of thoughts and feelings about this loss. Number five, talk it out. 
You don't have to go through the grief process alone. You can talk to a friend, a family member, a therapist, or a life coach. Feeling that you are alone will only prolong how long you are trapped feeling hopeless and anxious. Everyone experiences loss that results in grief and anxiety. There is no judgment or shame for how you are moving through the grief process, nor about how much anxiety may have arisen as a result of what you are experiencing. If you are ready to feel less grief, the best way to deal with it is to recognize that it is occurring, seek support, and take action to help it process. If you would like support through your grief cycle, please reach out to me through Facebook, Instagram, or by email. These links are all in the show notes. There is also a link in the show notes to the opportunity for 10 people to get life coaching for six weeks for free, no strings attached. I am simply wanting to bless 10 people with my brand new coaching program. If you're thinking you don't need to hear this episode because you haven't had anyone pass away recently, hold on and listen anyways. This episode encompasses more than that specific type of grief. Also, apologies in advance for any volume changes as my microphone was disconnected for a portion of the recording. Whether or not you've had anxiety prior to a loss, you may find your anxiety exasperated as you go through the grief process. Grief is a cycle that everyone goes through throughout life after experiencing a loss. So often people assume we only experience grief after a death of someone we care about. However, grief can show up after a variety of circumstances The grief cycle is triggered by losses such as a divorce, a friend moving, the end of a relationship, could be a friendship drifting apart, a dating situation ending, feeling betrayed by a coworker that you thought was a friend, a child going to college or moving out or away, and yes, from a death. These are all forms of loss. The level of duress and intensity of the grief is impacted by the depth of the relationship, a person's resistance to or avoidance of the grieving process, the tools a person has to move through their grief, and anything that feels unresolved. You might wonder how these are all grief. The reason is that grief is all about loss. Loss of a person, a dream, an opportunity, or the way you wanted something to be or thought it would turn out. Denial. This cannot be happening, you may tell yourself. Although the loss may seem undeniable, your brain is uninterested in dealing with the reality of the situation. Anger. May sound like, why is this happening to me? You may be angry with yourself, a living person, or even a person that has passed away. You may even be searching for someone to blame, which can include yourself, others, or both. Bargaining. I will do blank if this can be reversed. The blank could be filled with anything under the sun. It is a form of begging the person, the circumstances, the universe, or God to make it different than it is. Depression. What's the point? Or it's hopeless. Or there's no longer a reason to go on. This involves a level of acceptance that the loss is real. You might isolate yourself and the emotions are no longer bottled up. The tears are flowing.